This psalm opens with a message to the deluded of the inevitability of death. Later in this message, we'll find, and in this passage that we just read, that death is an incredible, inevitable equalizer. The title of this morning's message, Paper Tigers, reflects in a modern figure of of speech the perspective on the Word of God when it comes to the human claim to power and influence. Any mere human claim, whether it be individual or corporate, a popular, influential, charismatic personality, a celebrity, an executive, an expert, a professional in any realm, in any area of life or thought, if they were to promote themselves as particularly gifted, influential, and set themselves up as a standard in any way, they are proven compared to the authority, clarity, and preeminence of God's Word to be nothing but a paper tiger. A lot of bluff and bluster on the superficial surface but they come in the, la- in the final analysis to have no authority, no strength. God can push them over by a breath of His mouth. By just a twitch of His little finger, the empires of this world collapse indeed. Nebuchadnezzar, the great emperor, emperor and uh, domineering figure on the ancient landscape of global authorities, raised up a mighty city and name for himself among the nations. But just with one decree and command of our God, known from the beginning of time in his perfect will, he said, today you will eat grass. Nebuchadnezzar loses his reasoning and the kingdom and the king of this kingdom is reduced in a moment to what? To a beast. Notice in our passage this morning, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like what? The beasts that perish. This is certainly evident after our death. We all become so much carbon in the grave, decaying matter, whether man or beast, all living creatures. Death is a great equalizer. But sometimes even in life itself, God reduces the proud to a lowly state of being. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he showed him that without the providence of God indwelling him, giving him the ability in some sense to think, to reason, to operate, to have cognitive abilities, he was nothing more than a brute beast headed for the same grave as all living creatures. Therefore, we see in the testimony of all of Scripture and indeed history bears witness as well that any individual or any government, any power, any authority that lays claim to influence and strength is nothing more than a paper tiger. Let me expand this analogy just a little bit. Imagine a scenario with me if you would. Imagine if you were to visit a museum and you were there with a Sharpie, a permanent marker, black permanent marker, and you decided you wanted to make a name for yourself. So you went up and down the halls of this museum where famous classical works of art, the Mona Lisa, Renoir, Van Gogh, and whatever else famous paintings were there, like Paris or museum in Britain or London or something. You take out your big Sharpie, and you begin to go up and down the halls of this museum, and you sign your name on every painting that you come to. As soon as a curator of the museum or security sees you, what will they do? Will they say, oh, you must be the one who painted the Mona Lisa. Oh, it's nice to meet you, sir. Will they say, oh, you are Mr. Vincent Van Gogh. I see you signed your name on that beautiful picture there. No, what will they do? They will immediately remove you from the premises. You will lose your privileges to ever visit that museum again. You'll likely be prosecuted for vandalism because you've just written graffiti all over something that you weren't responsible for and you didn't own. Let me tell you, that is the picture of any man, any claim to authority who uses the things of this earth who is blessed in some way to breathe the oxygen that God materially supplies, that walks on the ground that God makes stable by His dependable rules and laws of nature like gravity and so on, and says, I am a law unto myself. What is that man doing? What is that kingdom doing? What is that authority, that institution doing? They're signing the name on the Van Gogh that God is responsible for. They're signing the name on that classical piece of art and they're saying, with, uh, with, with their, all of their braggadocio and deluded pride, I am responsible for me and my life. I na- answer to no one. Absolutely ludicrous. And the grave will prove as much. It doesn't matter 
what kind of pedestal or self-importance we ascribe to one another or to anything for that matter. The grave, if not sooner, and if not God's judgment sooner, will prove that men and institutions are nothing but beasts that perish. And despite all his pomp, he will not remain. Imagine with me one more picture of joining an army or or planning a battle campaign to fight a nuclear power and going to war with nothing more than a platoon of scarecrows. How successful will your campaign be? Utter failure. You will prove totally and completely foolish. Well, no less futile than these three examples, no less foolish and presumptuous are all of the ambitions of fallen man who feel emboldened to defy the Lord of glory. They are, and we are, if we fall prey to this kind of unreasonable thinking, nothing but paper tigers. We ought to fear, if we are stand with the Lord, have surrendered to His Lordship and count ourselves slaves to Christ. We ought to fear people like this no more, that is, authorities in this earth, no more than God Himself is concerned that these paper tigers will elbow Him off this, the throne of history. They will never do such a thing. He, in fact, is responsible for their every waking moment. And if it weren't for His providence, they could not breathe, as I said, another breath. Psalm 49 sets the <coughs> excuse me. Psalm 49 sets the record straight and rallies God's people with a divine and inspirational pep talk, a Holy Spirit-inspired message that we need to hear if we are ever to fall prey to fearing powers and principalities, such as I mentioned in the introduction to this message. Um, And just a further note of context, the literary style of Psalm 49 is in the vein of books like Ecclesiastes, and you probably remember other biblical language along the same lines as what we read this morning. You'll find it in the book of Proverbs as well, and other wisdom literature. Thus, the distinctive genre of Psalm 49 explains this relative straightforward manner in which this song is delivered. Yet, I would have you notice as well, before we get into this this text a little bit more systematically, how the gospel shines forth. There's a moment in the center of this psalm, particularly in verse 15, where the author declares that he himself is ransomed. This is surprising. Let me submit to you, the gospel at this moment shines like a jewel in the setting of this wisdom literature as the author surprises us with a prophetic glimpse of eternal ransom. So let me give you a heading and a few points this morning to expound on a few of these Uh, points of overview. The outline of Psalm 49 and five points simply. Number one, our author opens with a universal address. Number two, he proceeds with a rhetorical question. Number three, he delivers objective truth. Number four, he gives a superlative contrast. And number five, there's a conclusive admonition. So briefly, verses one through four, universal address. Verses 5 through 6, rhetorical question. Verses 7 through 14, objective truth. Verses, or verse 15, superlative contracts. And then in closing, 16 through 20, conclusive admonition. First of all, universal address. Universal means applying to everything, everyone, all times, all places. It means it is comprehensive. Address, address simply refers to a message, a statement, a proposition a truth claim. Listen to the context of the introduction, the salutary. Who is this song addressed to? Who is the author's target audience? He says, verse 1, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. And then he mentions degrees, both low and high, rich and poor together. He says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. Verse 3, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And these opening four verses, we get something of the introduction to this psalm which identifies who is the target audience, who needs to hear these words. And indeed it is everyone, 
we also get uh, something of an explanation of how the author will deliver his message. He will do it by declaring wisdom, timeless truth of God. He will use creative means to do so, a riddle. He will use the music of the lyre. So this is a song. This is clever writing. This is intricately put together by the author, who is quite a literary genius. I only wish I could appreciate it myself in its original language. And it includes timeless truths and proverbial sayings that apply to everyone at all times, everywhere. Even as he says, addressing his psalm to an audience that includes all people, all inhabitants of the world, low and high, rich and poor, together. Underneath universal address, as we consider the target audience of this psalm, notice what this text refutes. There are many voices in culture today, even some who claim to organize themselves under the rubric of Christianity and have some liberal scholarship infecting their understanding of Scripture, and they try to tell us things that the Old Testament Scriptures, where they characterize them as specific for just a small and culturally distinct people. They are a message for a unique corner of the globe at a unique time for a semi-nomadic tribe in the Stone Age. And in doing so, the world's way of thinking, when they explain and understand the Scriptures in such a way, is meant to minimize their authority and power. When you hear professors of religious studies declare such things, understand the premise underneath. They're not telling you something that the Bible itself claims. They're trying to remove from the self-evident claim of the Bible its punch, its authority, and its power. Will they be successful? Never, and again I say never, as successful as a paper tiger will be to devour its prey. As successful as a platoon of scarecrows could be to defeat a nuclear power. As successful as a graffiti artist with a sharpie could claim that he painted the Mona Lisa. The scriptures address everyone. This is a universal claim and it is a target audience that includes all people from all time. The text refutes any notion otherwise. This is a message that is to be heard by all peoples, all classes, at all times. It is universal, it is relevant, it is authoritative, it is God's Word. Many times in society as we know it today, people change the style and the message and the approach of the church, and sometimes we're guilty of thinking we need a particular message for people with this kind of persuasion. So we'll split our churches into two services, maybe for those who like this style of music and that style of music. And we kind of get distracted, I think, and oftentimes because we sift and sort and we prioritize things according to where people are and their station of life and their hobbies and their interests and their background and their socioeconomic conditions. There's a certain gospel we ought to take if you were to buy this uh, idea, perhaps, over here in a poverty-stricken world. But the rich, that's not going to be relevant to them if you simply preach the gospel naked and unashamed in all its propositional truth. They've heard many things before in far more sophisticated language. It will be foolishness to them. What does the author of the New Testament, Paul, much of the New Testament say to this? He says, the Jews seek a sign, the Greeks seek wisdom, but I am determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It may appear foolish to the rich. It may appear uh, in, in different ways to different people, but the message is the same. What is the message? It's the same in the new as in the old. It's hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. The word of the Lord never withers, never changes. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever as He is. And it is a message relevant in our postmodern hubris a self-acclaimed, highly technical, advanced age. We think we're so important. We think we've progressed beyond these ancient words. We think this wisdom doesn't apply to people as sophisticated as us. Who are we when we claim or think such a thing? We're a paper tiger. We're a fool. 
We'll be proven brute beasts, especially when we hit the grave and begin to rot and become the sum of our carbon-based matter with everyone else who has gone before. And in that day, it will be self-evident even in our experience as it is in the word that man in his pomp will not remain. This is a universal address. All the world needs to hear the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, under universal address, let's consider this psalm as an artistic exemplar. In ancient times when scribes would record or copy the scriptures, they would have on one side of their writing or next to them what was called an exemplar. It was the original text, the one that was verified as a manuscript that was certifiably accurate. And then they would carefully look at that manuscript and they would dutifully record in their own hand a copy of that exemplar. We ought to look to the Scriptures and see how that illustration might befit us when we consider what is a good exemplar for even cultural expressions. I submit to you even artistic ones. Notice again in verses 3 and 4, the author says, My mouth will speak wisdom. What we create, produce, and promote, even by way of worship, artistic, uh, cultural expressions, ought to bear the mark of biblical truth. It ought to speak wisdom. It says, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. He goes on in verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Here we have implicit in the text a theology for cultural expression. Let us look to the Word of God even to shape our desire and our values when we consider what is good music, what is a good use of words and rhyme and melody and harmony and rhythm. It is, I would submit to you, in the example or the exemplar of Psalm 49, the Holy Word of God. This song provides a model for a biblical or biblical cultural expression. It answers the question, what type or kind of song or what's the example of a psalm that is worth its words, its music, and its participation. Psalm 49 is certainly one of those. That's under universal address. Secondly, point number two, let's consider a rhetorical question that comes now as the author moves through his argument in the form of this poetry. He says in verses 5 and 6, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Notice it's phrased as a question, rhetorical as I say. That is, the question is set up because the information that's given as the answer is the propositional truth. That's the objective reality that the author means to convey. But when he opens with this question, we can infer this much at least, that this is a question that is relevant for all times. Remember, as he said, hear all peoples, all inhabitants of the world. This question is one that's relevant for us today. Should we, in other words, or why should we fear in times of trouble? Let's ask ourselves as we examine the headlines in your mind of newspaper clippings or radio or television, top of the hour newsreels you might have heard this week. Let's consider whether or not we think that we are in times of trouble. Is there evidence, is there in our experience reason to fear in any way on account of the, uh, the messages that we hear trumpeted to us through these different mediums? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, is there any improprieties uh, in society today? Is there a lapse in moral standards? Is there a loss of the social contract that keeps men honest? Is there an increase in the immorality that would lead to a dangerous set of circumstances as we go about our daily lives. Well, I think in many cases, such is indeed the case today. Verse 6, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. And there the question continues, why should I fear these circumstances and why should I fear these types of people? Basically, it is natural for us in the human condition to see those who are materially equipped, that is, they have a lot of resources, naturally speaking, behind their name. They may be influential in their wealth, they may be influential in their intellect, 
They may be influential in their popularity. They may be any sort of different variations of an imposing figure in society today. They may serve in government. They may serve to influence our children through uh, expressions of entertainment and media. And it is easy for us to fear such daunting figures. When we see the landscape of our society today, we see evidence as we take the pulse of culture of a suicidal social decline. Families are breaking apart uh, like an avalanche of virtue falling down the cliff of depravity. There's a resurgence of paganism in our day. The roots of Christianity seem to be pulled up by the gigantic hand of hedonism all over the place. We live in a state that seems to have a malignant cancer of tyranny that increases and metastasizes by the hour. These are things that as they happen around us, these circumstances might trouble us, and I know I'm guilty of that indeed. The author of Psalm 49 calls into question our fear. He reminds us that when we fear circumstances and we fear imposing figures, mere men and mere institutions in this life, it is indeed a misguided fear. It is a questionable and misguided awe and reverence and respect. Even if they terrify us and we don't give them accolades and worship, we can be guilty of idolizing in a backwards or indirect way if we grant in our minds too much authority and too much power to those who are mere paper tigers to be destroyed by the flame of God's judgment in a moment. This is where we need to apply this text today in this section of this rhetorical question. But remember how the people of God had to apply it in times previous. I'd remind you of the Exodus moment at Mount Sinai. That's that moment that I often refer to in preaching because in the experience of the children of Israel, it's the point of contact where tangibly evident the holiness of God absolutely was uh, just magnified in ways that are beyond our comprehension. Smoke went up from the mountain. Fire came down from heaven. Lightning was striking and an earthquake was moving the very ground beneath the feet of the people and God's voice sounded as if a trumpet. Well, this struck a sort of holy terror in the hearts of the million or so gathered there. And even Moses itself, it's recorded in Hebrews, shook with the weight of this experience. In a sense, this was a good sense of holy terror, if you will. Because there is a fearful eventuality of facing a holy God with your sins uncovered. When the sacrificial system introduced in the culture of the Hebrews, the symbol of sacrifice which pointed to God's atoning power, now they could come before the Lord in reverence and fear and also embracing His love and His mercy. Yet think about it for a moment. There are other times when the people of God feared, but it wasn't a holy terror. Think when they entered the land, or almost did, that is, Yet finally, after years of wandering to the precipice of Canaan, right on the border, the spies go in, and what do they see? They see giants. They see walled cities. They see formidable conditions. They see man in his pomp remaining in the land. They see those who have risen up against the Lord in idolatry and in rebellion. They see those who have called their lands after their own names, and what did they do? They cowered in terror and in fear. And the question then of Psalm 49 is directly addressed to those who can relate to that circumstance. Why, Israelites, should you fear in times of trouble? Could not the God who shook Mount Sinai with His very voice deliver you from the inhabitants of Jericho? Could not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob slay by the word of His power every son and ancestor of Anak that stands in the way, be he six feet to nine feet tall, whether midget or mighty, no one can stand in the presence of the Lord. Why should you fear in times of trouble? So here we have two situations depicted in the Old Covenant uh, an Old Covenant example. On the one side, there's the fear 
perhaps as a category we could identify the fear of the lightning of Sinai. On the other side is the fear of the giants of Canaan. The message of Psalm 49 is, don't fear the giants of Canaan because of the fearful reality of the lightning of Sinai. Take refuge in God's almighty power, and then you will have sufficient armor to stand against everything that wars against you. Even as we see in Ephesians 6 in the New Testament, principalities and powers in the intangible realms of the heavenly places. Nothing can stand against our Lord, only stand in Him. Secondly, under this rhetorical question, there's apparent impunity. There's what appears to be uh, those who raise their ire and the rebellion against the Lord without accountability and for time at least get away with it. These are the ones who trust their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Are these operatives? We could ask ourselves, these subversive elements, a few examples that we've given from Scripture in modern day, are, these ri- are they rich and powerful enough to uh, slip a fast one past the Lord? Uh, think of our society today. If you have enough money in your pocket, it seems that you can purchase. Uh, that seems like justice is for sale. You just have to get the right high-paid lawyer to argue your case. You know, and uh, truth is then becomes the servant to, lit, lit, uh, to a, a litigious society and legal uh, back and forth in the courtroom. Think of other situations where uh, people game the system by bribing the powers that be, and there seems generally to be the ability to steamroll righteousness. And it's hard for us to exist under these circumstances without thinking, I'm just an honest person living, as it were, a stranger in this land of immorality. How will I ever get ahead or get by without playing by this game? I would re- remind you of Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel when he was outnumbered 450 to 1. And who won that contest? You see, with the Lord, nothing is impossible. One can put a thousand to flight, and no weapon formed against us shall prosper. So these rhetorical questions are there to tell us When we analyze the circumstances, it is not right that we would have a misguided awe, respect, or fear for the enemies of Christ, and neither is it the truth that they will continue without judgment, with impunity. There will come a day of reckoning. Number three, this morning we've considered universal address, the rhetorical question, and now the author begins to deliver objective truth. I use this term objective truth because it's, dis- it's to distinguish what is often thought of as truth or some shade of it. In fact, it's a perversion today. Today, truth is thought of as subjective. Truth is truth relative to the subject, relative to you. There is no truth in many secular minds today in the progressive, liberal, humanistic society that's pervading our, our, our uh, social context, like a cancer, there is no objective truth. There is no standard over, above, and outside men in their confession, in their minds. Yet the author is, recognizes this to be the case of the deceived and the ungodly. But what does he do in the face of this great rebellion? He asserts objective truth. Listen to these life-giving clear words of authority that are given in verses 7 through 14. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit, for he sees that even the wise die, the foolish and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they call their lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts, say law. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Very quickly, here are just a few objective truths that this psalm asserts. First of all, there is no such thing 
as an earthly ransom. There is no way in the sum of your ability or your riches or your earthly experience to cheat death. There is no sum high enough to buy eternal life. There is no way to pass from this existence into life eternal outside of a supernatural ransom price. And we'll get to that at the close of this message. Suffice it to say for now that the author of this psalm is delivering the truth, the objective truth, to the deluded hearers. Remember, all peoples, all inhabitants of the world, listen to me. Even cheaters cannot cheat death. You may have elbowed your way up the ladder of success, trampling on ethics and Christian morality all the while. You might have greased the palms of magistrates. You might have perverted justice in the streets, even codified it by statute. But no cheater can cheat death. No con man will ever be able to slip underneath the pearly gates of glory. Where will he be on that final day? Well, he will rot, first of all, in his grave. Then at the second resurrection, he will stand before the omniscient judge who knows the thoughts and recesses of the heart. Remember last week, Hebrews 4, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing asunder, dividing joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart, and then the pronoun shift. He, so the pronoun shift begins, or the passage begins with declaring the Word of God as like a written and, and, and a tool, but then it shifts to the Lord. And it's a picture of the all-seeing, sharp eyes and implements within the authority and power of God to reach into the heart and to see everything. And so at that last day, at the great judgment throne, the only destiny that will be before the cheaters and those who thought they could get by the trials and temptations of life by their own bootstraps and wits, they will enter hell eternal, where the flame never dies. And worms and suffering and the imagery of the scriptures merely scratches the surface of the horrific judgmental circumstances that befall those who deny this objective truth that there is no ransom price that men can pay of their own account to avoid the judgment that is deserving of every sinner, and truly all have fallen short of the glory of God. The second objective truth that we see in 7 through 14 is that the world has delusions of immortality. They believe they can manufacture circumstances which at least fool them into some sort of false peace, which is really a form of mental insanity denying reality, uh, denying the clear evidence in front of you because you'd sooner remain in a delusion than face the truth. Uh, Woody Allen once quipped, I don't want to become immortal through my work. I want to become immortal by not dying. Woody Allen again, I don't want to become immortal through my work. I want to become immortal through not dying. It's a little moment of clarity in the life of someone who produced a lot by way of, you know, culture and so on, a stand-up comic. Well, many in, uh, many in opposition to this notion have tried indeed to search for immortality, meaning, purpose that will live on beyond them in the sum of what they could accomplish and tangibly interact with in this world. Notice verse 10, speaking of the fool and of the man, the paper tiger, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. What were they trying to do here? Trying to secure an eternal legacy by attaching their name and putting their energy into efforts into things of this world. All their passions, all their affections, all their love, and all their energy had to do with how big their paycheck was at the end of the month, and what their plans were for the next weekend, and what they could produce in the sum of their life to give it meaning. I listened to a little debate last week, and a natural, she called herself a humanist, a 
naturalist. She is a scientist with multiple PhDs or whatever, and she advocates to make sure Darwinism is a stalwart, uh, in stalwart supply in the curriculum of public education. She fears that it might be edged out by those religious, you know, right-wing zealots. And she was asked an important question in that interview, that debate. She says, where do you find meaning in your life? Because she had just finished saying that the universe is pointless and nothing happens to you after you die, you just decay. She said, but for these 70-some years that I hope I have, I will make this world a better place. I will do my best with my colleagues to work towards scientific progress. I do suffer and have sorrows like other human beings, but I find in the conversations I have with my comrades, my colleagues, and my family a great comfort there. What is this woman? This woman, in that attitude she displayed, is what Psalm 49 would call foolish and stupid. She says that there is no God, there is no point to the universe, there is no sovereign plan, there is no objective truth, yet life can have so much meaning. No, it can't. What is she doing? She's naming a land after herself and pretending that she can live forever. What a deluded idea. But how many of us are guilty of doing something that foolish and that stupid, at least in a prior life before we met Christ? Putting all our energy and all our efforts and all our hopes into something that perishes with the using. The Word of God calls forth from Psalm 49 with objective truth and said, You think that there is purpose in life or life beyond without a supernatural intervention. It's a delusion of purpose. It's a delusion of immortality. Thirdly, the objective truth, another objective truth that the author delivers is that death is the great equalizer. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. In this passage, I think you'll see the similarities uh, between um, this passage, Psalm 49, and wisdom literature. But we also see a cross-reference that just really underscores this truth of the futility of life lived under the sun, as it were, in the reality of death. Ecclesiastes 3, 18, uh, beginning in 18 through 21, reads as follows, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Is that language familiar to you? Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts and what happens to the beasts is the same as the one dies so dies the other they all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity all go to one place all are from the dust and to dust all return who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth so i saw that there is nothing better and that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And the context here is to personify the delusional and depressing picture of life under the sun. The fact is, no matter how hard you work and how famous you become and how many things that give you a little uh, pick-me-up like a drug of pleasure that you produce in this life, death is the great equalizer. There's a picture in a song I used to listen to that is particularly graphic to describe a concept similar to this death as a great equalizer. There's a wax museum in Madame Tussauds or something like that in England, a famous place where you can see, um, you know, realistic statues of, uh, you know, famous figures and historical figures through history. So you'll see Elvis and Queen Elizabeth and everything else and, you know, Howard Hughes and, you know, for all I know, Justin Timberlake. So you're there in this museum, and you get this collection of influential paper tigers, right, to use our language for this service. And in this song, the, uh, art, the artist imagined, what if you just turn up the heat a little bit and a little bit more? What would eventually happen? Well, all of those in that room represented their, their human condition were made of the same stuff. And the hotter it gets in the wax museum, the more they melt. 
And it doesn't matter how rich and famous and influential and powerful, how many lands they were able to name after themselves, they eventually all go down the same drain. Why? Because death is the great equalizer. In the end, man is proven to be merely a beast. What kind of a beast? Well, a beast like a sheep. This is the path of those, verse 13, who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, verse 14, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. We're about to make a shift to a redemptive note here, which is very hopeful and exciting given the deplorable reality that we've experienced so far of the sinful condition and what it portends for man. But before we get there, consider this. All people are sheep. It's just a question of who is your shepherd. According to Psalm 49, all peoples, all inhabitants of the world need to reckon with this truth. You all are sheep. Everyone who has been born, the only difference between you is who is your shepherd. According to Psalm 23, is the Lord your shepherd? You shall not want. Or according to Psalm 49, is death your shepherd? And you are headed for judgment. That is the reality of the destiny of the human race, one or the other. Why? Because death is a great equalizer. It is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. And only the sheep who have the Lord as their shepherd have hope of eternal life. And that leads us to the point of hope, the gospel moment central to this passage in Psalm 49. Let's read and savor verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. That's a word that combines death and destiny. What happens to you after you die? This mysterious and inevitable place of the soul's rest, whether in peace or in torment. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol in this context. That dreadful end of uncertainty and outside uh, having no assurance of salvation inevitably in hell itself if we have not received redemption in Jesus Christ. But it says, for he will receive me. Who do you suppose the author is talking about in verse 49? God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he shall receive me. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, let's consider supernatural ransom. It is true that there is no earthly price that could be offered to buy men back from the grave. From the clutches of His inevitable end, there is no earthly price. If all the gold in the world could be mined and stamped into bullion, that massive amount of precious metal would not get you one step closer to redemption from death. There is a supernatural ransom, however. This is the superlative contrast. Superlative meaning extra or dramatically different and distinct. Whereas the inevitable end is so depressing, there is a superlative, a dramatic, a striking contrast between those who are headed for destruction and despair and those who have been ransomed supernaturally. We might ask ourselves, if the price could not be paid or measured in the riches of this life, what in fact is the cost of our ransom from death? Mark read these verses at the opening of this uh, service today in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I tell you, this ultimately is the He who the author of Psalm 49 referred. He will receive me. Jesus Christ shed blood is the ransom price to deliver us from death. By superlative contrast, the sheep are separated from the goats. The adopted sons of daughters of God enter into glory, 
while the, those who stood and remained in enmity with him at their death receive the message, depart from me, I never knew you. This is the glorious hope of salvation. This is the gospel jewel shining on the setting of wisdom literature in Psalm 49. Consider it, believer, if you have the assurance of that moment of your own salvation and your experience, treasure it with all your heart, realizing in the fear of the Lord again what the alternative would be, how depressing that is, and then being motivated to cry out to those who have yet to see that they live a deluded life with delusions of immortality, and death the great equalizer will prove them to be a mere beast unless they receive a supernatural ransom, the blood of Christ, to buy them from the clutches of death. Finally, in closing this morning, our psalm concludes with an admonition, conclusive admonition. Admonition is instructions. Now directly addressed to the hearer, we read in verse 16, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you, though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. And this refrain in verse 20, a repeat virtually of verse 12, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. First of all, let us notice in this conclusive and summary admonition at the end of Psalm 49, notice the price of stealing glory and praise. This is the theme and the refrain and the message for the unbeliever who would hear these words those, it says, when the glory of his house increases in verse 16. There's a reference to earthly glory or that which the earthly man pursues again in verse 17. It says his glory will not go down after him. There's a reference in verse 18 to the superficial and temporal accolades and, and compliments that we get, the praises, as it were. It says, and for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. There's a term there as, as well and that indicates a prosperous condition that he deluded himself with. And it goes on, and though you get praise when you do well for yourselves, thus we see people on this earth who have not bowed to the Lord try to acquire for themselves glory and blessing and praise. And the Bible is clear. The price of stealing glory, blessings, and praise is judgment. The theme and refrain is that the worldly who set themselves up as idols and are deceived eventually show themselves to be stupid and foolish, beastly, and have no standing before the Lord, only the inevitable end of judgment. Yet for those who find themselves by the pure mercy and grace of God, reveling in the ransom price of Christ's blood, assured of their entrance into glory, they need not fear those who are so driven and motivated, and psychotically so, to pursue their own glory and their own selfish ends. They need not fear those, though they are wicked and might kill you to their own end, they might use you as leverage for their own devices. Do not fear them. Instead, who are we to fear? Fear our Redeemer. Fear the Redeemer. Be not afraid of when man becomes rich. Well, who ought we fear? Consider the Lord, the God who will ransom your soul from the power of Sheol. In closing this morning, we are not to fear the bully pulpits of our day. Things we mentioned before and add a few to the list. The paper tigers, the stupid and foolish, the man in his pomp represented by things like statism, Hollywood, cultural icons, trends, worldviews, popular thinking, self-styled gurus, experts on television, professional pundits, Pentagon-style experts, quasi-scientific authority claims, academic sophistry, corporate interests, establishments, political parties, nation states, war machines, celebrity CEOs, progressive philosophers, military industrial ends. Never mind all of these or any of these or any more that I failed to mention. They are the materially well-positioned impostors. Do not fear them. 
you are beholden to your Redeemer. 1 Corinthians 7.23, listen as I read these words. It says simply this, a message to us this morning. It says, you were bought with a price, referring again to that ransom price, Christ's blood. Do not become slaves of men. What is the message of 1 Corinthians 7.23 and Psalm 49? The message is, you are beholden and a bondservant, a slave of the one who paid your ransom price. If somebody purchases your freedom with the cost of something that they have, you are beholden to them. You are, your freedom is owed entirely to them. And in the same way, we are slaves to righteousness and slaves to Christ. We answer and fear our Lord, who in the shedding of His own blood paid our ransom price. So never mind the paper tigers, the apostles and the idols. Fear your Redeemer and Lord Jesus. In closing, an author was quoted as saying of these words we read today in Psalm 49, Men of worldly honor, without the true wisdom, are worse than the beasts that perish. Yet men of spiritual understanding, without worldly honor, are higher than the angels of God in heaven. We may not have any worldly glory, worldly blessing, and worldly praise or honor in this life, yet the purchasing power of Christ's blood will usher us into glory, and there we will have riches eternal, and we will appreciate the glory of God beyond compare forever and without end. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ's blood has purchased our salvation, our redemption, and our entrance into glory. We pray that the convicting Word of God would root out fear of men and would plant fear, reverence, awe, worship, and an assurance of your steadfast love and its endurance in our lives so that we might cling tightly to you and let go of anything else that we might fear or serve in this life that is in opposition to you. We thank you for these moments we've had together. We pray the fruit of your Spirit's use of these means today, the worship, the hearing of the Word, the fellowship of the Beloved. We pray that even these prayers might serve as tools in your hands to continue to strengthen our faith and equip us, convict us, and correct us so that we might glorify you more fully today than we did yesterday and ever more so until the day of your soon return. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.